Okay, so today I'm talking with Trevor Hilder of webofwealth.org, um, and he's a specialist in the viable system model, Stafford Beer's viable system model. Um, and so this interview will be just an overview. I'll, I'll link to more information in the description below. Uh, so I'll just have a bit of a, a preamble first, Trevor, if, if, uh, if that's okay. Um, what I'm really interested in is how we can use the viable system model to federate a non-extractive cooperative network um, and a network that's comprised of small autonomous units, not giant corporations and not, and not, not giant um, cooperatives either. Um, I'm interested in how far we can scale this federation. Um, so we're having a meeting of key people who are working in the, the new economy, if, you, if you'd like to call it that, in March. And the aim of the exercise is to work out how to federate and grow the non-extractive economy uh, in the UK. So we currently have a, a, I don't know what you'd call it, a state corporate alliance that skews the market heavily in favour of multinational corporations. Uh, and plus the state gives monopoly control of the money supply to private banks. And so it's very difficult to federate and grow a non-extractive economy when so much advantage is given to the corporate sector in that way. Um, so, uh, you know, the wealth concentrates more and more, which is used to influence politicians, lobby them, give them money, give them jobs. Uh, and that skews the market even more in favor of the corporate sector. So um, it's a bit of a downward spiral. Um, so, uh, so I've heard from several sources that uh, the, a way to federate, and maybe the only way, is via the viable system model. And I'm very interested to find out if this is the case, um, especially in conjunction with mutual credit. Uh, I also know some key people in the new economy, either in, in specific sectors or um, in networking organizations. Uh, they don't know very much, if anything at all, about the viable system model. Uh, and, and plus we're blogging this interview and we're putting on YouTube for a general audience. And so I'm keen to provide uh, accessible information about VSM and mutual credit in ways that don't involve sort of arcane language and difficult, very difficult concepts. Um, I'll, 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 as I said, I'll put some links in the, in the uh, description below. But uh, can you give us uh, an... Oh, hello. This is, this is Keith, by the way. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. Everybody needs a pussy cat to turn on. Yeah. So, um, but can you give us a can you give us a brief overview of of the viable system model, which I'll call VSM from now on, and yeah, how absolutely. how it might um, how it might help to federate this new economy? Yeah, I mean the basic principles of, of VSM. Uh, the secret's in the name. It's about viability. So if we think of um, just about any living organism or, or, or organization that is made up of living organisms, uh, they always have purposes. In other words, what makes the difference between a, a glass of water sitting here and your cat, for example, that just wandered in, is that Organisms and their collections of them have purposes which are internal to them. In other words, they've got their own purposes. Now, the viable system model says, well, there's a fundamental foundational purpose that has to be there. 
and that is to remain viable in the environment you find yourself in. So you might want to do all sorts of ambitious things like invent, you know, Amazon Web Services or or Apple computers or something. But if you if you're not alive, you're probably not going to get too far. So the whole gist of it is to say, can we get down to the absolute fundamentals of whether there's a set of laws that determine the, whether it is good, whether any organism, whatever it might be, whether it's your cat or me or my family or this country or whatever uh, is there a set of fundamental laws that we can uncover about what enables them to remain viable in the environment they find themselves in and not overly surprisingly uh, the evidence is that the answer is yes <laughs> so the VSM is all about saying okay so if that's the case what are those laws because if we understand those laws better then we will not make blunders and undermine our own viability are you, so, are you talking about are you talking about um individual organizations now or are you talking about federation of organizations well what's very interesting about the model is that it encapsulates the idea of recursion I mean, if you think about it, like Russian Russian dolls nested inside themselves, the basic one of the basic principles of the viable system model is that viability is relative to a particular environment. But of course, if you go up a level of recursion, uh, you're looking at another viable system, which itself has to follow the same principles. And up above that, we'll get another one. So everywhere we go. If you look at the history of, of the cosmos from, from day one, you find systems emerging into existence and becoming more and more complex over time. But they all have to follow these principles of viability to sustain themselves in their environment. So the same principles work whether we're talking about me being viable sitting in this room or the people I care and love about that I'm related to being viable as a family and friends, or whether we're talking about the business I run, or whether we're talking about Microsoft or Apple or, or the UK, England as a part of the United Kingdom. So the whole point about the laws of viability is they apply at all these different levels. So whether you're looking at an individual organization or a federation of organizations the same principles apply and for this federation would would there would, would there be a center or is it a is it a centerless network uh, let's go back to some fundamental principles because this is a bit like um uh if you think about modern physics that really gets going with isaac newton in 1689 i think it is with his principia might be 1687 um, he uncovered a set of principles, four, four laws of dynamics, or was it three laws of dynamics and the, and the inverse square law of gravitation that apply to all physical systems. Now, it, people have been sort of throwing things around and playing cricket and doing all sorts of things for a very long time before he uncovered those laws. Uh, but once you've uncovered the laws and you know them, it enables you to do much more powerful things like 
land and man on the moon. So the viral system model is based on a very simple principle called Ashby's law of requisite variety. And it's the equivalent of Newton's laws of dynamics and physics. And it says that um, if I want to be able to be viable, the environment I'm in has got lots of different tricks up its sleeve, which we call the different states it can get into, which is what the variety principle is about. And if I want to be viable, I have to be able to respond to any trick that the environment throws at me. If, I, if it throws a so trick at me that I can't cope with, I lose control of the situation. So you have to so, say if, if an asteroid is going to hit the Earth, you have to know about it. You have to know about it and you have to know, know what to do about it. Exactly. So, so basically, the, the Ashby's law of requisite variety is simply saying that there is variety is just a principle of lots of the number of different states something can get itself into. And the Ashby's law of requisite variety says that any state that the environment can pull, up, pull off, if I want to stay viable in it, I have to have a trick up my sleeve to match that. So it uncovers the principles of how do I match the requisite variety that's coming at me. Because if I successfully do that, I can be viable. If I fail to do that, I will not be viable anymore and I will collapse. So there's this very, very simple law of Ashby's law of requisite variety. And the viral system model is simply the unfolding of that principle to identify what functions are necessary for any entity to be viable in its environment, whatever that environment is. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to. I'm trying. I'm going to try and relate all this to to uh, a federation of non-extractive organisations. So, on pr in practical lines, would you have to organise the the businesses within a federation along VSM lines before you can federate them? Where, well, where's, the, where's, where's the starting point is what I'm asking. Okay, the, the, the starting point is a bit more subtle than that. It's like, it's like asking me, do, do we all have to obey the laws of gravity in order to, do, to, to stand up? And the answer is, well, the laws of gravity are there. Uh, they're operating all the time. But if you know about them, you can do things like figure out how to build a spaceship and get to the moon or something. In other words, the viability rules are operating all the time, whether we're conscious of it or not. But if we are conscious of it, we can, we can do better than if we are. Yeah. Okay. So um... there are only five principles, actually. So the principles that un unfold are actually very, very simple. So I can go through those, and then we can start applying them to, to federations of um, co-ops. I, I actually read John Walker's guide um, and I was told by several people that it was very, very complicated and I wouldn't understand it and we need a, a more accessible way. I, I, I find it, I'm not a technical person, but I found it quite accessible. And well, yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I run a, a sort of crash course in this stuff that lasts no longer than a day. And my take yeah. on it is once you get the principles, you don't need to read a load of books and, and theory. Yeah. You the, just applying it and using it as a diagnostic tool to understand how to do better yeah the five systems i'll put a link to the five systems in the description but it's they're, they're, they're pretty simple to understand yeah um, exactly. but, but what i'm asking is about the, the the practicalities of implementing this 
the practicality of it are mostly about looking at what you've got at the moment and and and, and identifying these functions that are operating so that you can consciously take them into account and make them operate better. Now, are you talking? Are you talking within within organisations or between organisations? If we're talking about a federation, I'm still talking, well, I'm still talking well, about the well, starting. Well, the way you would approach it is because it's a and it's about nested things. You would look at each of the organisations that you want to federate and say they are they must they themselves if they're alive and they're running, they must themselves be viable systems already. Already. So when you look at them from, a, so your federation should be at one level of recursion upwards from them. And from the point of view of the federation, those organizations are what we call system one or operations. In other words, they are delivering services. Otherwise they wouldn't be there. So from the perspective of the federation, each of them is one operational entity. And within, and within their own organizations, they will have their own operations. And, and, and they, the next level of recursion down, they will have all the same functions operating in order for them to be a viable system. And I've got all these functions operating as an individual human being, enabling me to be viable, to be here in this room having this conversation with you. Yeah. Um. All right, so we can accept that the uh, organizations to actually be in the Federation would already be viable, so we can start at the federating level. Yeah, so if you look at the federating level, the next function you need to examine is that these operations exist. They must be in some kind of relationship with each other or wish to be in a relationship with each other in order to make our federation work properly we have to have the function of which Stafford Beer called system two operating. System two is a coordination function that makes sure that these organizations don't get in each other's way and trip each other up. Mm -hmm. Okay so the coordination function would, would be the thing that, that makes sure that for example two organizations within your federation are not sort of just fighting each other for the same business. And that might be because they're right next door to each other in the same town or something. Yeah. So what you'd have to do is you would have to have some kind of coordination agreement so they're not effectively uh, in conflict with each other, undermining each other uh, because they're both trying to do the same thing in the same place for example at the same time. So we need a coordination function and the vet federation, the basic idea of a coordination function, if we take it as an example that we all know about, we all went to school. In terms of a school, if you're looking at it as a, an entity, each of the teachers delivering teaching in a classroom is one of the operations of the school, one of the system ones, right? Now you want, you need to make sure that you, they don't end up trying to teach two different classes in the same classroom. So the coordination mechanism that solves that problem is called a timetable. So the timetable is a function that makes sure that 
the kids and the teachers know which room to turn up in to learn, to teach them to learn a particular subject at a certain time. So they don't all try and turn up in the same room at the same time. So the coordination function, if you can get the individual operations to agree amongst themselves, that's great but to the extent they can do that. But when necessary, you have to kick it upstairs to that next level. So it's nice if they can agree amongst themselves, but there will be certain things they can't sort out. Then they kick them up to the coordination function, in your case, of the federation. So the federation is overseeing that coordination, but it's not imposing anything on anybody. It's a, it's a service to the entities that want to join the federation to make sure they're not in conflict with each other or they're not, they're not getting in each other's way. Right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, there is then another function which staff would be called system three, which most people call, um, some people call it cohesion or optimization. Day to day, or optimization, day to day management. Okay. And its job is to ensure that the federation is, well, first of all, there is something called a resource bargain where if we're going to federate, we have to have resources that can be offered to, to people who want to be in the Federation to reward them for being in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what we call the resource bargain, where we're saying, we offer some resource to you, to, otherwise why are you going to join this Federation? You're not going to bother to join it if there's nothing in it for you. Yeah? yeah. In exchange for, our, for the Federation offering some kind of resource, we expect accountability from the operations. In other words, the members would need to account to us to say, we gave you some resources in expectation you would, were going to be doing X. Can you account for that and show that you really did do X? So that's what we call the resource bargain. Yeah. Okay. The other aspect of it is that the Federation is going to be some kind of legally constituted entity and it will have some kind of ob the legal obligations or what comes from its environment it is a registered entity legally in the uk or whatever it is oh so the but, federation itself will be an entity um with staff I, i'm not going to assume that what i'm saying it, it's going to have to be not necessarily not necessarily no, but, 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 but I'm saying the thing about this model, which is so powerful, it's saying these functions must exist. But it's not saying whether they are supplied by somebody who is an employee or somebody that does it because they're out of the kindness of their heart or they only work on it one day a week. We're talking here about what functions have to be there. We're not okay. making about how they are being delivered okay so they could be delivered by the membership or, or the member organizations themselves yes um, as long as they're there they have to be there yeah um, and what about sort of cooperative organizations that already exist and they're already sort of giant command and control organizations can um, can they be I don't know what I don't know how to put this <laughs> could they be split up could they well, be okay, let, 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 let's, 
can I suggest that we finish talking about the five different functions first? Sure, 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 yeah. And then when we've got those in our heads, we can start going back to reflecting on particular organizations that exist now. Yeah. So, so we've got this idea that there are operations that deliver something to some kind of client base, which we call system ones. We have a coordination function between them, which we call system two. We have a day-to-day -day co cohesion function that says bring these together in some form that gives us some kind of synergy that wasn't there before. And we call that one system three. We've talked about the fact that it has to have a resource volume. It also has to oversee regulatory compliance. In other words, if you're going to be part of this federation, it has some kind of obligation to make sure you're not breaking the law, like laws of some things like health and safety, or there was laws that are imposed from the outside world on us. If we don't comply with those, we're going to get into all sorts of trouble. So the federation is going to have some kind of resource bargain to get people to, to have a reason to participate. But it will also have to oversee them meeting regulatory obligations, such as keeping the right accounts, all that kind of stuff that we have to do to keep the, keep the show on the road, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got those functions properly in place, then you've got an organization that can run day to day. In other words, it's okay to, to run at the moment. But there is another function that we need, which we call some system for our intelligence. And that function has to say, here we are in an environment, happy as can be. Things are running. We've got our resource bargain. We've got our regulatory stuff being looked after. Da, 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 da. We're all happy at the moment. But the outside environment is evolving all the time. The environment is not static. Therefore, so, we need so, so system two and three are looking inwards and system four is looking outwards. Correct. So system three is overseeing the system one and system two day-to-day -day basis. But the system four intelligence is saying, yeah, this is all right now, but what's going on in the big wide world? What's thing, what are things going to look like next year, the year after, 20 years' time, 30 years' time? We have to take a look at that and make sure that we are all going to evolve the, the way we're working now to, for, to keep us viable as the environment changes on outside. And that's what we call the intelligence function, which is looking outside, forward in time, to say, okay, we've got this coming up. There's a new law coming out. Uh, there's a new business opportunity coming out or an old business opportunity is dying. Electric cars are coming along. Well, how is that gonna change the way we transport stuff around? All that sort of stuff. So that's what we call the intelligence function. So you'd expect that this federation would have to have that intelligence function operating for long-term viability as the environment changes. Right? The final function is what we call system five which is, uh, what's our ethos? Why are we here? What's our policy? What are our policies? What is this federation? What does it mean to be in the federation as opposed to being not in the federation? 
somebody has to make those decisions about why it exists at all. What's the what's the overarching purpose of this thing that keeps it with an identity that is identi identifiable and it maintains that identity and doesn't allow that to get distorted out of shape, keeping the ethos clean, keeping the ethos straight. That's what we call system five. Those are the five functions that have to be in any system for it to remain viable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but those, those, those five uh, systems, that could equally be applied to um, a corporate. Yes. A, a, a multinational corporation could apply yeah. that across its entire operations. And if so it does, is, is there any... Is there any, can it give a competitive advantage to co-ops or the extractive sector? The thing about it is that... Um, the non-extractive sector, sorry. Okay, well, what, what I would say is that one of the things that's very interesting, I mean, I, I mean, most of my career has been in doing consulting, IT consulting for all sorts of different private sector organizations from supermarket chains to companies that manage fleets of vehicles for company company car fleets and all sorts of stuff like that to uh, colleges, you know, sixth form colleges, all sorts of different things. Um, so if you, okay, why are we interested in cooperation? This, 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 this is about the ethos, okay? So we've talked about this extractive ethos. Now what, what happens is that in my experience, the kind of organizations that the cooperative movement doesn't like very much, <laughs> the reason for it is that if you look at that system three function, the function of the resource bargain, regulatory accountability, and so on, it, 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 the day-to-day -day management function, it can very easily collapse into, and it usually does, a power hierarchy that is wielding power arbitrarily over people. In other words, if it, hasn't, if it hasn't got those other functions working properly, the system four and the system five function, it tends to collapse into a command and control system that bosses people around by exerting power over them and using the resource planning as a mechanism for compliance that becomes illegitimate compliance and unjust. Okay, so effectively, the system three function often becomes predominant and it becomes a bullying entity that overwhelms everything else. And that's what we don't like. That's what we're trying to get away from. But as you've pointed out yourself, all organizations can fall victim to that such as, as you say, the giant, giant cooperative moves that become not much different to any other private sector or any other organization that they're, you know, they're so, competing. Yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was another reason I was saying that. I mean, you, you look at the co-op bank. Um, yeah. if, if that had been a federation of small financial institutions, then if one part of it had stumbled and fallen over, then it could have been patched up or it, it could yeah. have survived without it if the whole thing falls over and gets swallowed by a hedge fund, it's gone. There's no longer a corporate bank in the country. Well, well what's happened there is uh, we all know the story about the crystal Methodist and so on, which is the guy that uh, became known as the crystal Methodist. who's one of the, uh, I believe he's one of the night exec directors that uh, 
he was a, a minister, but ended up discovering that he was taking crack cocaine or something. So he became known as the Crystal Methodist. Oh, right. Okay. So that dysfunctional state, it wasn't, it, yeah, in terms of expansion, it got about as ghastly as um, Fred the Shred in, um, in our Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, another example of corporate dysfunction. So all organizations can collapse into that trap, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a trap of forgetting what the, the higher purpose is. We're talking about, about ethos is that losing sight of connecting things back to the ethos and allowing domineering individuals that are good at day-to-day keeping the shell on the road, or system three people, to just dominate the thing and take it over at the expense of the other higher level functions of system four and system five. It just becomes a, a power hierarchy and a bullying structure. Mm -hmm. So, so but, but the problem is that unless you're very vigilant, any organization can go that way. So it's not like, oh, we are a co-op movement, therefore we're not susceptible to that. It would be nice to believe that was so, but we all have the evidence that it's not like that. So the system three function can get so overwhelming that it actually undermines the viability of everything else by becoming a domineering power structure with people bullying other people into compliance. It's the same kind of thing that happens with things like the Tesco supply chain. You know, that it, 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 it's seductive for a supplier to supply to a supermarket chain like Tesco, but if you're not careful, you lose your identity and become swallowed up and dominated by the entity that is, that is supposed to be running the supply chain. It just ends up. If, if, but if a cooperative federation can get that right and not fall into well, that trap, and not fall well, into that trap, do, could can it give any competitive advantage? Can you can you see any competitive advantage that it can give to the cooperative sector if it can also be used by the corporate sector? Well, the answer to that is that in the current phase of development of the corporate sector. Uh, the corporate sector's biggest problem is that all of the, just about all the corporations in the world have collapsed into believing that into what, sorry, into, you, you disappeared then, what did you say, sorry? Collapsed they've, into what? They, sorry, this is a bit breaks up on the camera. Mm -hmm. they, they've collapsed into believing that their customer is their shareholders. Mm, yeah. So the fundamental reason why they become dysfunctional and actually destroyed their own identities is that they all believe that the only purpose they exist for is to deliver value to their shareholders at the expense of all other um, stakeholders. And that means that they're actually not got, they've forgotten what their real purpose is. So they've, they've allowed their real purpose to get collapsed down to an obsession with keeping the, the share price cranked up. So that's, that's, that's the measure of their dysfunction, is that they're not fulfilling the purpose from the point of view of the purpose should be what are, we are here to serve customers, what are the needs of our customers? That should be the first priority, that should be the focus of the organization instead of which they lose sight of that and we just become like a kind of domesticated herd 
that they just treat as though we're just there on the sharp end, the receiving end of whatever they deign to do for us. So are you saying that they're unlikely to change in that respect and therefore that's our competitive advantage? Yeah, I mean, what will happen is that if they can't escape from that trap, they will collapse along with the rest of the financial system because what, what basically the same, I, I'm using the same diagnostics at a different level of recursion looking at the financial system. You can diagnose why the financial system is unstable. And so, you know, it's pretty clear to anybody who uses these diagnostics that the causes of the crash in 2007-2008 have not been understood. So that itself is not a viable system. So it's, in other words, it's going to crash again until somebody understands what these principles are and starts to apply it and to designing it properly, yeah. making it more than an extractive thing for hoovering up money and yeah. passing into an elite that understands how to manipulate the system to their own advantage. Yeah. So, so, so what I'm talking about is building an alternative system uh, yeah. to, to do just that rather than yeah. trying to patch up the one that we've got. Yeah, exactly. So, so to, to, and to a large extent, from my perspective, because, because, you know, money is such an important driver for all of us. Like if we don't get paid at the end of the month, we starve. It's that resource bargain thing is being used to put us in a state of insecurity where we feel like we don't have any other options and we're trapped in this treadmill of just trying to make sure that we don't get fired and we get paid at the end of the month. Now, part of the solution to that is to reinvent money. And that's why there's a, this is why it's important to take a look at the nature of money and to think about designing forms of money that serve us better which are much more in the space of complementary currencies and things like that. So, that, lends so me, that, that leads me to the next question, which is, do you think that VSM is a good match with mutual credit? Yes, absolutely. It, it, it's a much more viable form of uh, way of thinking about the monetary system than the one we've got at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to be talking to um, Tom Greco next week. Um, and interviewing him about mutual credit. And the week after that, I'm going to be interviewing Dill about how to combine the two. Yeah. Um, so well, I have a lot of connections with a, with a community of people called Metacurrency, who've done super interesting work in that space, and also the Hollow Project, H-O-L-O, which yeah. is one of the projects. I, I, I'm much involved in that. Yeah. Arthur Brock was there the night I met you, actually. Yeah, he was indeed. Yeah, that's right. So um, here's a question. Is, is VSM too complicated to be useful? Is that, is that why it hasn't taken off? Uh, if, it's okay. such a, if it's such a good idea, why hasn't it taken off? And I know I said earlier that it was a simple concept, and it, it is a simple concept, but it seems complicated in its application. Okay, my answer to that is that I have been applying the principles of the viable system model to all the work I do since I tracked down Stafford Bain, learnt it from him in 1995. And I started to apply it to major kind of ICT projects and things like that in 1996. And every time I've applied it, it has produced spectacular results. The biggest difficulty with it is that I have had a lot of difficulty selling the services I can provide. 
because what I do on a routine basis looks impossible and everybody says, ah, that can't be possible. You can't possibly have done that. <laughs> so ironically, one of the difficulties with using it is that you get such good results that everybody else thinks that's not possible. It just must have been a fluke and you, don't, you can't possibly do that. So uh, paradoxically, the very power of it and also the simplicity of it makes it difficult to, in quotes, sell because it looks... Looks a bit uh, like magic beans. It looks like magic. So it, because it looks like magic, um, people just shrug their shoulders and go, that's impossible. So, so when I... I mean, back in 1996, I started on a project to completely re rewrite all the ICT systems for the spa supermarket chain, which is itself is a kind of a cooperative thing. It's all, yeah, independent businesses, aren't they? Yeah, so I actually got asked to, to take 24 separate IT systems that didn't even know about each other and turn them into a, an integrated IT system for the future of the, of the organization. And I did that in three years from scratch with only five of uh, developers. Uh, when I presented the results of that, and it was benchmarked by somebody from Warwick Business School to prove that it was true, when I took it to conferences and presented it to people like Marks and Spencers and Tesco and all these people, they all sat there mumbling in the audience going, oh, you couldn't possibly do that in our organization. That's impossible. So they just wouldn't listen. Oh, good. We don't want them to succeed. succeed. Well, that's the point, is that... The reason it's difficult is that it's not actually difficult. It's actually very, very simple, but it requires a shift. It's a paradigm shift into thinking this way. When you've got it, it's, it's like the same kind of paradigm shift as going from the Ptolemaic system of working out what motions of the planets to Isaac Newton's um, Principia with four, four simple laws, you know, three, four simple laws, and suddenly the right bit of mathematics and suddenly you can land men on the moon mm -hmm. now using the principles that he worked out in 1687 i mean there's nobody's nobody's done any rocketry with anything that wasn't in principia 1687 but the shift from being a ptolemaic thinker to thinking in that new way is a subtle process that isn't very easy and that is why I've hit on this model of offering a one-day crash course and, 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 and followed up by advice to help people to get to grips with it, to cut out all the complications, to say, look, this really is simple. I can get this across to you to get your feet on the starting line in the day, and I will support you after that so that you can run with it. Uh, and actually, um, I'm very happy to do that because... I have found that it's taken me a long time to understand how to overcome that barrier. People go off into, and you know, sort of doing three-year courses at the Open University and thinking this is all too complicated. People write academic papers about it. They have conferences about it. You don't need all that stuff. You really don't need. Starting point in one day sounds like a very good thing. Well, I'm, I'm prepared to help people do that. I'm about to go to India to do this for some people in India. Oh, well, I'll interview you again when you get back from India and see how it went. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
Um, could a federation, could a, could a cooperative federation like Mondragon in the Basque Country happen in the UK? Well, what's interesting is, you see, I think if you reflect on where these things have been very successful, they are in places that have a very, very strong sense of their own identity. So that, the, and I think that is absolutely fundamental that without a very strong sense of that system five ethos, that identity, there is no motivation to do it. Are you now, saying this, um, are you, this was sort of anti-Franco uh, yeah. Basque nationalism? That, exactly. Um, I'm not saying, but yeah. if you look at, anyway, if you look at, say, Berkshires in Berkshire, Illinois, is it Illinois? I think it's Illinois. Again, you've got a very out of the way rural area with a very strong sense of identity, thinking, what are we going to do to keep, keep maintain our viability? So they're going to invent themselves a new form of money. So there has to be, there has to be this um, strong sense about identity. If you don't have that strong sense of identity and you don't maintain that, the re that's the system five stuff. If you can't create that or identify it, you're not going to get this thing going. This is probably why it is, for example, there are very important things going on in Preston, in, in, in Lancashire. Yeah. The Preston model, which was presented at Open 2018, is very interesting. Is because they just realised, well, we're, we're being hung out to dry. Um, if we don't do something off our own bat, with our own resources, we're not going to get anywhere. So I think that starting point is super important is it has to come from a very strong sense of identity. I think our strong principle could be um, system change rather than yeah. any kind of sort of, um, you know. Yeah, it doesn't have to be geographical. It's not necessarily geographical. So, for example, the yeah. Metacurrency project with Arthur Brock and Eric Harris-Broad, those guys have been going for well over a decade because there's a very strong ethos that underpins what they're doing. Um, and that you have to think very hard about what well, what is that because if you get that right, and you understand these principles of viability, everything else will fall into place. Without that, you're going to get stuck in the same old day-to-day -day sort of, you know, uh, keep on keeping on kind of mindset, which means you're not going to be able to do it. So Stafford Beer used this. Uh, model for the whole of Chile, didn't he? Until well, until until Pinochet and the CIA. Um, yeah, well, unfortunately, um, yeah, but you could say that uh, that that is not exactly what I would call a success. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't successful, was it? It, uh, it wasn't his fault, though, was it? Sorry, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't successful. It was. Well, I have to say that having, I, I have great respect for Stafford. He's a lovely guy. But I think you have to say that you have to accept responsibility for the viability of what you're doing. And unfortunately, he got trapped in the middle of the Cold War. And I think he was, to be honest, quite politically naive. And he didn't understand that he was out of his depth. So I, I, I'm not blaming him for that because circumstances in the, in the 70s were very... I, mean, I watched Henry Kissinger talking about that on on PBS America TV last night. And talking, about, talking about what happened in Chile, amongst other things. Well, well yeah, um, you mean 
the application of VSM in Chile? No, but what actually happened and what his perspective yeah. on it was. So I know it from the, from the perspective of Stafford and his colleagues trying to do some extraordinarily ambitious things, and I know that pretty well. But to see what it looks like from the perspective of Henry Kissinger and what he thought was going on is fascinating. Yeah. And there's a very good PBS documentary on that, two hours of Henry Kissinger. So, 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 what, so what I'm saying is, if you think about Stafford, you can think about, he's the guy that uncovered these laws, did a fantastic job. But in that sense, he's rather like a miner who discovers a beautiful, a potentially beautiful jewel in a mine. He brings the, the jewel out of the mine. You don't also expect him to actually do the, uh, the faceting and the making it look beautiful. Why? Why would you think the same person can both uncover the jewel and also make it look like a beautiful jewel? That's asking too much. I think we, as a, as the next generation, we have the obligation to try and do the work he could not do because of the circumstances he found himself in. But do you think? Do you think um, the CIA were against? Uh, the viable system model and, and Stafford Beer, or just just against just against Allende. What they were against is that they perceived Pinochet. Uh, sorry, they Allende. perceived Allende to be a stooge of the Soviet Union mm -hmm. in their backyard. They were going to kill that. It, it's yeah. not necessarily true, but that is what they saw, and that is why. Kissinger denied that they actually had anything to do with the actual coup, but they were very pleased when it happened, um, for obvious reasons. He, he admitted, well, we were dead, dead delighted because we, we were going to find somewhere to get rid of that, whatever happened. But it did look as though he was, um, you know, in, in different circumstances, he could have actually um, used VSM to organize the entire economy of a country, quite a big country. Well, the point about that is, you've got to remember, he was trying to do that with one IBM mainframe and in a country that's 3,000 miles from tip to tip, using nothing but telex in 1971. I mean, you know, uh, that's insanely ambitious. And it was astonishing that he achieved as much as he did. Yeah, we've got we've better tech now. We certainly have. We've got, we're far better positioned. From the point of view of the point about co-ops and identity. The other thing to bear in mind is that our position is much better now because the old business as usual way of doing it, the kind of neoliberal markets are going to look after it all and we all live happily ever after. That blew up in 2008. It's going to blow up again and that means that we have a strong incentive to find another way to, to rescue ourselves from, from from that mess that is just about to unfold. So you will find an awful lot of people, in other words, part of the sense of identity comes from the necessity to survive in difficult circumstances. So I think we're, you know, our prospects are much better than they used to be, simply because this stuff that's being done isn't viable uh, and it's, it's destroying itself. Mm -hmm. So, so for a, for a cooperative federation, is this right? So individual co-ops um, or sole traders, or if they're, they're organized into networks, cooperative networks, they have to give up a little bit of their autonomy to the entire system, um, plus, 
individual businesses will have to divert some resources into the meta system, uh, but the meta system yeah, will yeah. Gi give back more than it takes. So you get when shared you facilities and resources. Well, and well, about, if you think about me, or, or think about me and my wife and my, and my kids as a, as a little viable system. What, what made me, you know, uh, I'm, I'm getting on a bit now, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of edging towards um, retirement and not having to worry so much. But, you know, when you're bringing up kids, uh, your focus is making sure that you pay the mortgage and you keep the roof over your head. So why did I go to work every day? I had entered into a resource bargain with the people employing me to say, look, I will devote a certain amount of my attention, hours of the day, da -da 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 -da, in exchange for you paying that. And that's how they got me to contribute towards their higher purpose, by offering me enough of an incentive to make it worth my while to, to, to put that time in instead of spending that time with the people I love. Right? Now in the same way, if you want to create a federation of co-ops, they need to appreciate that there has to be a value proposition that the federation offers to them, but there's going to have to be some kind of resource bargain where they're going to have to make their contribution in some form towards the viability of that, which means they will have to offer something to it in exchange for the services that it is offering to them. It's yeah. about getting the equation right. Yeah, John Walker said that um, uh, the important questions are, number one, what are the expected advantages of the Federation? Number two, how will the requirements of the Federation interfere with the member cooperatives? Number yeah. three, how will the money be raised to fund Federation activities? And it's like, exactly, that's exactly what... Uh, members are going to potential members are going to want to know yeah exactly um, so we have to spell out the benefits of a federation very clearly yes uh, but i think lots of people these days they they want system change and they can't see it coming by yeah. the ballot box or or by yeah. violent revolution or by divine intervention and yeah. so it is 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 vsm it especially in combination with mutual credit is that the is that the way we're going to do it well put it this way Trying to defy Ashby's law of requisite variety in the viable system model is like deciding that you're free of the laws of gravity. Like, I'm not subject to gravity. You are, and I'm not. That's just like, try that. See how you get on. <laughs> the point about the viability is the laws are operating, but if you know what they are, yeah. and you understand them, you can take advantage of them instead of just being victim of them. So it's That's a wise move to use it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what might first steps be? So, so, so what tasks might attendees at this meeting in March or anyone else who wants to build a new economy, uh, what, what tasks might they leave with? What needs to happen and who needs to do it? Well, we, we need to be working on that when we're in the room. Right. I mean, I, I've said to you, Dave, that from my point of view, I am only too happy as long as, as long as the, you know, I can have my, my um, expenses covered, to, to do this one-day course for anybody that feels that they are going to benefit from it, to give them a kickstart into this world as rapidly. We're not talking about going on a course for six weeks or anything. And very rapidly to, to get the process kick-started and then 
to support anything else that follows through. And obviously people like John Walker and so on, obviously, you know, the guy is an expert. He's as expert in this as I am. He knows the co-op movement better than I do. I do think that we have to pay a lot of attention to the fact that it, we don't have requisite money. In other words, our forms of money don't have requisite variety for the job. So part of this business is to figure out how to create forms of money that better serve us to get us out of the trap of thinking we have to run around begging for ordinary fiat money to get anything going. I think yeah. we're, we're, we're beyond that. We've moved beyond that now. Yeah. I mean, we, the, we, you know that we're building a UK neutral credit network. And I, I do, and I, I've signed my expression of interest for it. Good. <laughs> and, I want to be um, part of that. Yeah, so we want to try and tie together the VSM model and um, neutral credit. And that's all about giving, giving, out, giving ourselves credit, giving each other credit rather than exactly. relying on, you know, monopoly of your debt, debt money. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I read something about Mondragon, which I thought was really interesting. And the, the, um, it's, if you think about it as a, a bus full of people, so uh, everybody on the bus has decided where that bus, where, where they're going. Because if yeah. they didn't want to go to, if they didn't want to go to where the bus was going, they wouldn't be on the bus. So exactly. every, everybody on the bus has to agree where that bus is going. Yeah. But then they give, they give the authority to drive the bus to the driver. Um, and they don't look over his shoulder and say, you know, slow down, speed up, go left, go right. They just leave it to the driver to take him to that destination. And That's I thought right. that was a really interesting way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, so here's a question about Stafford Beer. Was he interested in the non-extractive economy or was he just interested in cybernetics and increasing efficiency regardless of who for? No, he, he started out, um, he's a very interesting character and I, I have sort of been asked to, get, to give a sort of talk about my personal reflections on what it was like to know him. Um, and he was an extraordinary character, but he was extremely concerned with the issues that you're talking about. John Walker knew Stafford probably at least as well as I do, probably better. And John Walker will affirm to you the commitment that Stafford had. I mean, for example, St Stafford was working with um, a guy whose name I've entirely forgotten, who created a kind of idea of world citizenship. And Stafford also wanted scientists and engineers to sign the equivalent of a Hippocratic Oath to say that they would not use their skills in any way that was damaging to human life. So he, he was very, very concerned with these issues. Um, doesn't mean that he knew what to do about them very effectively, but because, because you know, you've got to remember the world has changed a lot since the 1970s when we were trapped in a cold war with the, new, the threat of nuclear annihilation hanging over our heads. Partly we still are. I mean, that hasn't gone away. But it doesn't feel as horrible as it did. There are twice as many countries with nuclear weapons now as when the nuclear non-proliferation treaty well, was, this is not, was signed. This is not that's, something, quite, that's quite a worry. It is a worry. I, I, but it doesn't feel as terrible. I mean, you know, I, mean I remember being a kid um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
and literally going to bed thinking we might, you know, I was about 12, I think, thinking that four minute warning might go off in the middle of the night and we could all be dead by the morning. That wasn't nice. It really wasn't nice. At least we don't kind of have that horrible sense of that thing hanging in the, it, it, it doesn't mean it's gone away entirely, but it doesn't feel as dangerous as it did. When, when people are paranoid, as, as certainly people like Kissinger and Nixon were paranoid, they do nasty things because they're paranoid. So getting people out of their paranoia trap is a very important part of the work of freeing people up to do something more constructive. So um, I'll certainly promote your one-day courses, and then maybe maybe that's a way um, for you know one representative from each organisation to to go along to one of your one-day courses. But we can certainly talk about more about that on March the ninth. Great. Uh, I, real, I realize we're coming up to an hour, and uh, we haven't mentioned your moral modalities framework. Um, I don't know whether well, you want to say something just for five minutes, okay. just to finish off with, with that. Very briefly, I developed the moral modality, and this is my, my development. I developed moral modalities framework in response to, it, it provides an explanatory framework that explains why people have had so much trouble getting the viable system model to be used. In other words, it's a, it's a sort of five-dimensional moral philosophy. It is derivable from the viable system model. But a lot of the people I've, I... So what I do in the one-day course is I go through a crash course in the VSM as the kind of physics of this thing for two hours, and then we take a break, and then the, next, the last two hours is about moral modality framework, which is like a kind of five-dimensional recursive moral philosophy built on the VSM. Because a lot of people find it more accessible, more comprehensible, and it aligns with what we know about social psychology and things like um, behavioral economics and all that kind of stuff. But most of that knowledge about what causes us to comply with things we shouldn't be complying what with. What was that last thing you said? What economics? Oh, behavioral economics. Oh, behavioral, sorry, I couldn't, I didn't hear what you said. Kahneman and Spursky, uh, thinking fast and slow, all that kind of stuff. So what I've tried to do is to derive a, a kind of five-dimensional recursive moral philosophy, which is really a set of tools that I think people find more helpful as a, as a different way of thinking about the viable system in a manner that is more kind of connected with ordinary experience. So, so they're intimately involved with each other. And I developed it as a, as a set of tools that I think are possibly more accessible and therefore hopefully will enable people to apply it a little bit more easily than, than traditionally has been possible. Uh -huh. um, I did see some notes that you, you sent me some notes, but I didn't, um, you, the, uh, yeah, I have to admit they were difficult to follow. The, 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 the VSM notes were easier than the, moral, the MMF notes. But yeah, well, I, that's because that I haven't written sort of proper presenter notes for that presentation. Yeah, right, yeah. I used that presentation in the one day course, but it hasn't got, I haven't really given it. I mean, at the moment I'm writing a book based on VSM MMF, using them as a diagnostic for everything we know about past civilizations. So I'm kind of writing a history of civilization. As you do. That, 
through that lens to see whether it illuminates the history of civilization and why civilizations fall and how we can avoid doing that again. That's a nice little project as you're coming up to retirement. Yeah, it's just a little hobby I've got. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to blog this. In, I'm going to I'm going to transcribe this interview. I'm going to blog it. I'm going to embed the video in it. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to send it out to the attendees of the meeting and anybody else obviously can comment and put queries on that on that blog post. Are you happy yep. to answer answer specific queries on Delighted. the blog? And then, um, and then we can uh, really sort of hit the ground running on March the 9th. Um, and, and as I said, I'm going to interview Tom Greco and Dil, Dil Green about um, combining the mutual credit and VSM. I mean, Dil has actually done my one-day course. So has he? Yes. Yeah. All right. So... Um, I think that's it then, Trevor. Oh. You're very welcome. Thank you. And uh, okay, you. and I'll uh, I'll give you a shout when you're back from India, and we may maybe do it again. Yeah, cool. See how it went in India. Yeah, thank you very much. Fantastic, then, Trevor. Nice speaking with you. Great. Bye. Cheers. Bye. -bye.